Thank you so much, Neil and Tina, and thanks to the team. Everything in the service this morning has just reminded us of how generous our God is. When we think about being generous people, uh, we know really we're not in our own nature. But don't we have a generous God who just overwhelms us with his kindness and goodness every day? What a generous God is ours. And so I want us to, this morning, turn to the passage that Tina read for us. Continue this series, the Sermon on the Mount. And we do have, as we do regularly here at West Park, if you're new to the church, maybe you're our guest, in the month of November, we regularly focus on generosity. It does approach the season of giving, thanksgiving, and then on into Christmas. And it helps us, I think, enter into a couple of seasons in an attitude of worship. It's been said that Thanksgiving is the lost holiday in America. And I'm afraid that's maybe becoming the case, but how could it ever be the case with any of us who know the Lord, His kindness. Every day is thanksgiving. And then every day is a reminder of Christmas. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. So let's pray that the Lord, who's a generous Lord, will once again this morning do what we need, and that is to unclench our, our fists and Open our heart to receive all that he has for us as freely we have received, freely we give. Now, let's look at this passage that we've looked at this morning. And as I thought about this passage in our time together uh, today in worship, it came to my mind about a power that we are struggling against. That's a, a lot spiritually like it is in the physical world about us. And that's the, the law of gravity. Now this week I, I flew to Pennsylvania for a missions conference and um, then came back. And on the flight back from Pennsylvania, it was a beautiful day. And you could look out the window and just see the amazing view of autumn and coming over the mountains. It was just spectacular. But as I was thinking about it, sitting there, almost you could say, how is this happening? <laughs> I mean, really, if you started thinking about it, this, is, this is kind of a scary thing. Cruising along, going against a law that exists throughout our world, the law of gravity. But here I am, sipping my watered-down Coke and stale pretzels <laughs> and looking out on the beauty of this flight and overcoming this power of gravity. Now, I recall when I was a little boy, I was always amazed by planes, 
flying from the earliest days I can remember. If I was given the opportunity to draw something in school, I'd draw a plane. I love to get the model planes. And then on a regular basis, when I was just tiny, I would go down the little bank near our house, bank of grass, stretch out on it, look up, and, and see the, the jets flying overhead. And I thought that was just amazing. Sometimes the fighter jets coming all the way from Dayton, Ohio, would come by and the sonic boom would go off. And it was just an amazing thing to experience. And then I came to know as I got a little older that our hometown in Indiana was the birthplace of Wilbur Wright. Wilbur Wright. Of course, Orville and Wilbur Wright were the first in flight, Kitty Hawk back in 1903. So all my years growing up, I hate to admit it, but I can actually barely remember that one day after my sixth birthday, John Glenn circled the planet. Now, I know nobody here can even think about knowing that. And then the Gemini flights where they go out on the first spacewalks, and then the top of it all for me was the Apollo space program, which was going to put a man on the moon. And I recall so clearly July 20th, 1969. It was a beautiful Sunday summer afternoon, but none of the kids were outside playing, none of them that had television sets, because on that day, the Apollo 11 landing craft descended, and we're watching television, and at 4.17, here came the statement from the surface of the moon, the eagle has landed, and man had arrived on the moon. Well, guess what? That was a Sunday afternoon, and later on, they were going to come out for the lunar walk. And my mom and dad said we had to go to church that night. Yeah, I had that kind of mom, okay? And so we went to church, and I remember I'm sitting there fidgeting, looking back at the clock, wondering if Pastor White is going to do one of his long, long sermons. I come by it naturally, won't you know that? And I'm going to miss this. And so I begged Mom, as soon as church was over, let's get home. And we got back there, and of course things were delayed a little bit. Sitting there glued to that set, 10.56 p.m., Neil Armstrong watched him on that black and white screen come down that ladder, put his foot on the surface of the moon, and heard that crackling statement come over the television set. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And you know what I did shortly after that? I, I just... I just could hardly believe it. I went outside and looked up and could see the moon. And I thought, there's two guys walking on that. 
And it was just one of these surreal moments that I, I never will forget. And I was thinking, even then, just as a 13-year-old boy, just 65 years ago, they had the first flight, Wilbur Wright, from my hometown. And now this guy, Neil Armstrong, who grew up just 70 miles away, is walking on the moon. That was an amazing moment. That mankind had found a way to overcome the power of gravity, even to the point flying to the moon, landing safely, walking on it, and coming back. I thought about that this week. As I thought about another kind of gravity that no human power can overcome. Another kind of gravity that Jesus is talking about here. And it's a power of gravity not one of us in this room can overcome, but through Jesus, we can live in freedom over this power of gravity. Here's what I want us to think about this morning from these words of Jesus. I want us to think about the gravity of money. The gravity of money, or you could call it the gravity of stuff. And how through Jesus, yes, we can overcome this gravity. And I want to say something to you right now. Overcoming this gravity doesn't get easier by just living longer. As a matter of fact, as I've gotten older and older, and I start thinking about the years ahead, I've found that I can start actually struggling more with the gravity of money than I ever have before. It's a constant struggle, but I want to tell you today, after many, many years of experiencing God's faithfulness, it is a power that can be overcome by the power of the love and the generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Now let's listen to what Jesus had to say. He warns us about the power of money as gravity in our life. And here's what he warns us about this, this gravity of money. Number one, Jesus says that money has the power to bind our hearts. It has the power to bind our hearts. Look, if you would, at verses 19 through 21. Let's look at those again. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, notice Jesus is describing a huge gravitational power. The gravitational power of money to bind us. But I want us to address something right up front, friends. 
Jesus is not condemning money itself. Money is not the root of all evil. Don't quote the Bible that way. That's not what it says. Money's not the root of all evil. Money is neutral. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Nothing's wrong with money. Nothing is wrong with earning money. And some people, as they follow Jesus, have been blessed with the ability to earn significant amounts of money. And on top of that, the Bible encourages us to be wise with money. The Bible encourages us to be thrifty. The Bible encourages us to save. The Bible encourages us to diversify our savings. All of this is in the Word of God. Jesus is not condemning money. But He's warning us about how money can bind our hearts to this world that is not the real world of His kingdom. We talk a lot about wealth. I want us to stop for a moment. You know, when we talk about money and amounts of money, we have to remember living in America, it's a radically different scale. Recognize this, if you make minimum wage in the United States, you are in the top 15% of the world's earning. 85% of the people in the world earn less than minimum wage in the United States. Listen carefully. If your household income if your household income is above $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. You've heard about the one percenters? Well, if your household income is above $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1%. You see, we even have to, in this country, see money and the reality of how the rest of the world deals with this amount of money. What Jesus warns here is not to do something. He's warning something here. Warning us. What's he warning us about? Do not lay up. Do not hoard up. And the, the tense here of the, the original language is this. Stop hoarding up. You see, the way Jesus said it here and the way Matthew inscribed it in Scriptures by the Holy Spirit is Jesus anticipates that if we are left to ourselves, we will be doing this. We will be hoarding up riches on earth. And Jesus says, stop doing this. He says, it's foolish. It, it, it just makes no sense. Why? Because Jesus says, it's unsafe. And it's temporary. You can, you can hoard up all kinds of money, but ultimately your wealth hoarded up here is unsafe and it's temporary. He gives three examples. Do you notice those? He says, don't hoard up this, these riches where moths 
can eat. Some people hoard up their wealth in clothing, especially that was one way of doing it in Jesus' day, in expensive cloth. Or rust. <laughs> the word rust here actually means eating or gnawing. It means you can hoard up your wealth in grain, in agricultural riches, and the rodents can get to it. He says you can find a place to try to hide your riches, hide those coins, but the thieves can break through and steal. Jesus says it's really foolish to hoard up wealth here on earth because it's unsafe and it's temporary. But now listen carefully. Jesus it does instruct us to be hoarders. Jesus does instruct us to be hoarders, but wise hoarders. Notice what he says in verse, six, verse, 20, uh, verse 20, rather. But be storing up, be laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he says the reason this is wise is because the moth doesn't destroy. The rodents don't eat it. And the thieves don't break in and steal from the vaults of heaven. It's completely safe. And it brings eternal dividends what you store up in heaven. I remember some time ago, I was listening to a clip of a commencement address by Denzel Washington. Many of you are familiar with that well-known actor. And I was somewhat surprised by something Denzel said. As he was challenging these graduates, he said this, quote, You will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And I thought, now Denzel, you should have told them you heard that from me. Okay, that's one of my quotes. But you know, it's not original with Denzel, and it's not original with me either, but it is a great thought. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I have conducted hundreds of funerals, and I have followed behind countless, countless hearse, and not one of them has had a U-Haul behind it. But here's another truth. You can send it ahead. You can't control it and protect it forever. You will leave it behind. But there's a sense in which you can invest in eternal things and you send it ahead. You lay up riches in heaven. And that's through generosity. Treasures in heaven here. This is through generosity. Heaven is in your heart. And so you, you, in generosity, your, your giving is to the things that last forever. That's what Jesus is saying here about how to break the gravity from your heart. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Someone as well said, 
our hearts might be a little more in heaven if we had a little more invested there in our generosity. Generosity changes your focus. What did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. There the the focus of your devotion will be. It will be where you put your treasure. This is an irrefutable law. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to go as day follows night. Generosity changes your focus. And this is what Jesus shares about another danger we can overcome. The first danger is if we're not careful, our hoarding up, our selfishness, binds our hearts. It binds our hearts like gravity to this temporary world. But notice what Jesus said can also happen. This selfishness and self-focusedness in how we treat our resources that we call our own can actually change our ability to see. Money has the power not only to bind our hearts, it has the power to blind our vision. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then here's Jesus' statement. If the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is saying that money has the power to blind our vision. It's been well said of our American culture at times. We know the price of almost everything and the value of almost nothing. It's also been said of our consumer culture. We buy things we don't need. With money we don't have to impress people we don't like. That can happen. The power of money can blind us. And Jesus uses that image here. He talks about the source of light within our spirit. He said if, that, that, if your light within you is darkened, it, it darkens your entire life. And he's talking about generosity and greed. That's the context he's using here. He says money has the power, if we come under its domination, it has the power to blind us. We don't even see as we should see. First of all, when we're controlled by the gravity of money, it can blind us to the value of life. The value of life. What what are the true riches of life? True riches of life, knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ, life in Him, and seeing God in all of life. 
Friends, I want to ask you, when was the last time you just saw the sun go down and you couldn't help but worship God who created that? When have you seen the last time a sunrise and thank the Lord for the newness of life? Blessed Him for the morning of the resurrection. When's the last time you looked out the stars and you're reminded your Father created them all and He calls them all by name? And He knows your name. When's the last time you saw an autumn day and you just, in your heart, this is my Father's world. When's the last time you heard a child's laugh and just thought of the goodness of the Lord, the gift of life? Thank you, Lord. Slow down. Slow down. We can get so busy making a living, we forget to live. To truly live while we do live. That's what the great Puritan Jonathan Edwards vowed when he was just a young man. He said, I will truly live while I do live. When we can get so busy, we can be so pulled by the Gravity of money, making a living, that in the midst of it, we forget to live. The power of money can blind us to the value of life, but maybe even worse, the power of money can blind us to the value of other human beings. It can blind us to the value of other human beings. This is what Jesus is talking about. You see here in verse 23, he says, if your eye is bad, or if your eye is healthy, what's he talking about? The, the healthy eye here in ancient literature and in Jesus' time frame, it meant generosity. If you had a good eye, if you had true vision, you had a generous spirit. But if you had a bad eye, an unhealthy eye, you had an envious spirit. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that when we're controlled by money, the gravity of money can actually change how not only we see life, but how we see others. When we're controlled by the power of money, we can develop spiritual cataracts. Our vision is clouded. We don't see life with generous eyes and we value the value of life and the value of people. We start investing in things, which means we are investing in ourselves. When we're hoarding up riches, it means we're investing in things and ultimately that means we're investing in ourselves. The sad truth is most Christians in America struggle deeply with this. 
it's well known that the more people make, the less they give as a portion of their income. You know what the poorest state in the United States is? What's the poorest state per capita in the United States? It's the state of Mississippi. Do you know what is the richest state per capita in the United States? The richest state per capita in the United States is Connecticut. Now, do you know which state in the United States has the highest level of per capita generosity? Mississippi. And you know which state has the lowest per capita charitable giving compared to income? Connecticut. The poorest state, the highest percentage of giving. The richest state, the lowest percentage of giving. And you know what? It'd be very easy for us to sit here and say, yep, them old Yankees. <laughs> but listen to this. The average churchgoer in the United States gives one and a half to two percent of his or her income in worship to the Lord and in the Lord's giving, the Lord's work. The average churchgoer gives one and a half to two percent of their income to the Lord and His work. Now imagine standing before God, standing before Jesus, and knowing that 98 99% of all that you ever were blessed by from His hand went to your own wants and desires. Now that has nothing to do, listen, it has nothing to do with the amount of the gift. That's not how God looks at giving. It's not the amount. Man looks on the outside. Where does God look? On the heart. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I had lunch with three pastors here in Knoxville. Dear friends, good brothers, and we would have lunch from time to time, just talk about things of ministry, check up on each other. Sometimes we'd have a topic, and one lunch we had a meeting the topic was stewardship and generosity stewardship and generosity and one of the pastors sitting at the table said you know i recently had five people in our church give 2.5 million dollars 500,000 each i heard that and then the next pastor said well not too long ago i had a man that came, God had blessed him, and he came and he gave a gift of $2 million to the, to the Lord's work at the church. And then the third pastor 
said, you know, just a couple of years ago, a couple gave $3.5 million to the Lord through our church. And I'm sitting there, and I think I said something like this. Oh, praise God. Praise God. That's wonderful. And inside I'm saying, Lord, right here, right here, 8833 Middlebrook Pike, right here. That's sort of what was going on in my heart. But let me tell you, I'm going to tell you right now the largest gift that was ever given to this church. I'm going to tell you about it. Largest gift that was ever given to this church happened in 1988. Now this was here. Now that was there. Just a little World's Fair building. Gravel road leading out to Middlebrook Pike. And after a couple of years, the Lord had grown us up. We were in a two services in that little round building. And people stepped out by faith to build the first building. And we had our first Jehovah Jireh emphasis. And a senior adult couple, Earl and Evelyn, invited me to come over for lunch. And it was a wonderful lunch, lunch talking with them, and we had cornbread and beans, and it was just the best time. And then Earl followed me out. They lived in a little bitty house off of Pleasant Ridge Road. And Earl, standing there on his porch, tears in his eyes, he said, Pastor, we're so excited what God's doing at our church. And you know, we're on fixed income. We, we don't have much. But Evelyn and I so wanted to be a part of that. And he said, so I thought and prayed, Lord, what can I do? What can I do? And he said, you know, I'm kind of a handyman. So what I started doing, Pastor, was finding at garage sales these old television sets. And I'd fix them up a little bit. And I'd find some radios. And I'd fix them up. And that helped me understand when I came up on their porch, there were television sets and radio sets on the front porch. And he said, Pastor, God has allowed us to sell a bunch of these. And tears coming down both their eyes. Here's the check that we want to go to that Jehovah's Jireh offering. I took it thanked them, hugged them. They went in, and I went out and got in my car, and I cried like a baby. I cried like a baby. It wasn't a large check, but there's never been a bigger offering given in the history of this church. I have in my desk the last check my mother ever wrote. And after my dad passed, my mentally handicapped brother was in a home, and those sources of income were gone. 
My mom lived on $1,200 a month. And the last check she ever wrote before her heart attack, she passed away at the hospital out west. She wrote to this church. And with $1,200 a month, every month, she'd write a check for $120. And I have that at my desk. Now, friend, that's generosity. That's, that's a free heart. Earl and Evelyn were blessed. And my mom, Eunice, yes, Eunice, my dad, Luther and Eunice. We used to call it the Luther and Eunice show. Blessed. Hearts free, vision clear, and love with loyalty. And that's the final thing, just as we close, I want you to see. Jesus warns us about the danger that money has the power to betray our Lord. Money has the power if we do not walk in the Spirit. Money has the power to bind our hearts to this earth. Money has the power to blind our eyes to the value of life and the value of people. And money, worst of all, uncontrolled by the Spirit, has the power to both betray our Lord. Verse 24, listen to Jesus. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. Notice what Jesus said. He didn't say it's difficult to serve God and money. He said you cannot serve God and money. The word here for money is mammon. It, mean, it meant originally to entrust. And then it came to mean that which a person trusts. And eventually it came to mean money. A synonym for possessions or, or money. And Jesus said, you can't serve me. You can't serve God and money. It's, it's a timeless principle. It's, it's an axiom. It's, a, it's an irrefutable law. You can't serve God and serve money. You can't live for God and live for money. It's impossible. How we handle money and material possessions will reveal our true master. How do, you, how do we know who's master? How we handle what our master has given us. Are, do we see ourselves as owners or managers? We're not owners. The Bible says God owns it all. We're managers of what he gives to us. My greatest teacher about generosity was my dad. My dad came to know the Lord when I was about 10 years of age. He was always a good man. 
But then he came to know Jesus personally. Wow, what a work God did in my dad's life. My dad was from the hills of Kentucky, did not have five or six years of education total. And you know, he had such a way of saying things. And he said this to me one time, and he said it many times to me. He said it like this. He said, son, listen, when Jesus came into my heart, he just came into my heart, son. And then he started drilling. And he started drilling down and down and down. And the Lord Jesus just kept on drilling. And he got down to my hip pocket and my billfold opened up. My dad used to sit me at the kitchen table and he would put his Chrysler check out in front. And he'd say, now son, get your pencil, piece of paper. He would put that check right in front of me. He'd say, now I want to know what's 10% of that. And I'd figure it out and I'd hand him the paper. He says, that looks about right. He said, now wait a minute. We got we to gotta think about the missionaries and some things our, our church is doing. So I want you to bump that up a couple more percent. And he would have me do that. And that's where I learned. Dads, moms, granddads, grandmoms. That's where I learned. That generosity is a part of following Jesus. We cannot live for things and live for God. That's the second principle Jesus gives us here. How we handle our possessions reveals our true master. And Jesus said, we cannot live for things and live for God. You can't serve two masters. Not difficult, but impossible. But if we live for God now, listen, He will provide now and will enjoy the true riches to come in the kingdom. You know, there's a lot, of, there's a lot said today about you need to know your net worth. Got to know your net worth. Can I tell you, very simply, and absolutely what your net worth is. I can tell you what your net worth is. Here is the calculation. Number one, what you possess that money cannot buy and what you possess that death cannot take away. The sum of those two is your net worth. What do you have that you wouldn't trade for any amount of money? And what do you have that death can't take away? That is your net worth. How to be free? Well, how, do, how can we be free from this gravity of money? Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. The answer is there. If you serve God, you'll be free from this master of money. 
Here is a statement. Can I just leave it with you? That has helped me in some ways try to guide my life. And I have not done it as well as I should. But here it is. Listen carefully. Jesus above everything. Jesus before anything. Jesus above everything. My Lord, my Savior, my King. Jesus above everything. And then whatever He gives to me. Back to Jesus. Before anything. Jesus above everything. Jesus before anything. I started this sermon by telling you about watching those planes in the air and watching Apollo 11. And I had an interest in planes. I studied planes. They were a hobby. But I did not take my first flight until December of 1978. Susan and I had been married for six months. And I was in seminary. She was working. Her mom and dad wanted us to come back. My mom and dad for Christmas. Her dad was willing to help with the price of a ticket. We went to the Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina airport. And we got on a plane. The cheapest flight we could get was with what was called Piedmont Airline. That plane looked like it was just almost as old as the Wright brothers. I walked in this plane. The seats looked like a cheap bus. And there wasn't even a door in the, co in the cockpit. There was just a tattered curtain. <laughs> Now, I believed in airplanes. And I walked in, I looked around, and Susan and I buckled up. And I let a man that I could not see take me 100 plus miles an hour down that runway in a beat up old looking plane. And you know what? In just a few minutes, I was flying. See, you, here it is. I believed in the airplane, but when I got in it and let the plane begin to take me, the pilot take me down the runway and Susan down the runway, now I'm trusting. And guess what I experienced because of my trust? I got to experience for the first time Flying, and I've been on hundreds of flights since, but I never forget the first one. Let me tell you something. When it comes to generosity, you can believe everything that's in this book. But it's when you trust to act upon these principles that in your heart, you will experience Jehovah Jireh. The generous God who supplies. Father, I thank you for this time. And Lord, I know that
my, my explanation, this passage is, is not all that it could be. But Lord, I thank you that I've been able to bear witness to the truth. And I thank you I've been able to bear witness of people who have demonstrated your faithfulness. And Lord, I thank you in some small ways that I've been able to experience that. And Lord, I pray for everyone in this room. Regardless of the income level now or to come, Lord, please deliver us from this power of gravity of money. And Lord, set us free to be free indeed. And Lord, one way that we are free indeed is to live as you said, freely we have received. Help us to freely give. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen.